Cruel World, and welcome to a very special, very spooky episode of I Love This, You Should Too. My name is indie living dead boy Randawa, and with me is the lovely Samantha Bone Eater He's. Bone Eater? Bone Muncher? Bone Muncher He's. No, that's worse. Flesh Eater He's. Flesh Eater. That's very on point for what we're talking about today. Well, I thought they were all. I thought the bone eating and munching. Bone munching is pretty on point, too. Yeah. I like flesh eating. All right. Yeah. Samantha Flesh Eater He's. That's me. How are you doing, Miss Flesh Eater? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good getting deep into the Halloween spirit, even though it feels like Halloween isn't happening this year. No, but I like to think Halloween isn't just a day when you can go out and get candy, although that's very great, and that's one of my favorite things in the world. Halloween's a, a state of mind. You know, you know where Halloween is? Halloween's in your heart. Oh, it's always in your heart. I carry that spookiness with me all year long. I can tell. You're always just a little spookier than the average guy. I think that's actually pretty fair to <laughs> it's say. It's pretty fair, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we might have some new listeners today. So let's give them a quick little rundown of how our podcast works. So Samantha and I have very different tastes in movies. And we take turns bringing a movie to the other, something they haven't seen, something they probably wouldn't watch on their own, something that they might hate. And then we come together and talk about it on the podcast that you are listening to currently. What are some of the movies that you've brought, Samantha? Bring it on. You brought it on, yep. Bring it on four. Also, that was brought. (laughs) We watched... Was it Christmas in Africa? Is that what it was called? Christmas in the Wild. Christmas in the Wild. Holiday in the Wild. Holiday in the Wild. I was way off. It was my own movie. It was quite bad. So I understand uh, why you forgot. Our, one of our top episodes, Bride Wars. Yeah. We've watched classics like Gone with the Wind and Titanic. Right. And then I've gotten you to watch things like Blade Runner, The Shining, My Neighbor Totoro, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. So some things that maybe you hadn't known about, and they've been received with varying degrees of success. Some you like, and I liked a lot of yours. I hated a lot of yours as well. True, true. I like to keep it interesting. And we're also going to be doing something a little different today. Because this is an all-the-horror tie-in, we have some special guests who are going to be joining us. So we'll listen to them towards the end of the episode, and we'll let you know where you can hear more from our guests. But until then, we are here to discuss the movie Night of the Living Dead from 1968. Yeah. So this is a movie that I claimed to love. I haven't seen it in quite some time, but I said this is an important horror movie. It's a great horror movie. And Samantha had never seen this. So I got her to watch it. We watched it the other night. Samantha, Night of the Living Dead. I love this. Did you? It was fine. It was fine? Yeah. That's it. Just fine, huh? Um, I have follow-up thoughts, but it's it was fine. Well, let's get into those follow-up thoughts. I was going to say what was fine about it, but uh, I guess what tempered it to not being great or what elevated it to you not liking it? I think that one of the major things, and it's no fault of the movie, is just that I have seen zombie movies 
that are done with like modern special effects. And I think that this lost a little bit of its like fun and specialness because it did seem a little like hokey. It is a low budget movie. Yeah. And it's an independent movie in the truest sense of an independent movie. Mm -hmm. I know we talk about things like Star Wars was technically an independent movie, the first one, but this was just a bunch of people getting together and making a movie for about $100,000. It went on to gross, I think, $30 million in its first run and probably well over $60 million in subsequent theater releases. So it was very successful, but very low budget for mm-hmm. sure. So we were talking about that before we watched it, that I worried the low budget nature of it That you could uh, see the strings, so to speak. You could see the artifice of the movie. And you definitely could. Yeah, and you found that took you out a little bit? It did. It did. And I think that's just through, like, fault of us having better special effects and me having seen, like, zombie movies are something that I um, kind of enjoy. Um, And they're, like, the one kind of arm of horror that I'll, like, watch kind of easily as opposed to, like, a really super scary movie. Um, so I think that I've just seen too many modern zombie movies and that kind of ruined the, the like, campy specialness of this movie. Camp is an interesting word because zombie movies are almost always have some level of camp to them. Mm-hmm. When you have undead creatures eating human flesh, there's gonna be some camp. I don't feel like there is any, or at least any intentional camp in Night of the Living Dead. I think if we see it, it's because we're not a more sophisticated audience, but a more experienced audience right. now. And some of the things might seem silly because we have the the benefit of time on mm-hmm. our hands. Yeah. So, I mean, there were so many things in this movie that I enjoyed watching. Like last episode, we talked about how this is kind of like the great, great grandfather of all zombie movies. Right. So I definitely appreciated that and really liked that part of it and um, was kind of on the lookout for like kind of things that you see in like later movies. And it was kind of fun to watch it through that lens. Um, And that's what brought it up from uh, like meh to uh, it was fine. (laughs) As is the point of this podcast, I am going to try to convince you that this movie is not just a good movie and enjoyable and scary. Okay. That it's also an incredibly important movie for mm-hmm. what it did for the horror and specifically zombie subgenre. Yeah. But also that it is a very unique record of time and has insights into the civil rights movement and far reaching implications that are still very relevant today. Okay. I'm ready. All right. I'm excited let's do about it. this. Well, I love when you convince me of stuff that I like already kind of like. And I think it's fair that if you just don't like this kind of movie, you could not like it. But liking it and recognizing its importance are almost two different things. Right. I think I do both. I actually just really like watching it just as a movie. So I hadn't seen it for years upon our watching this week. And it held up for me. It held up for you. Oh, it was it was brilliant. But what I found unique upon this viewing is that so much of it borders into art film. Oh, really? The whole opening cemetery sequence, I think maybe because it is so of its time, Mm -hmm. 
And it set up all sorts of cliches and was still relying on the 1950s and 60s horror tropes, which were more about uh, monsters, flying saucers, fear of the nuclear age. We get some really interesting shots there. And if you watch it now, it's hard to remember a time when all of those things happened in just like a popcorn matinee movie. Mm -hmm. They all seem pulled out of the art house rather than just a movie you'd go to see on a Sunday afternoon. Right. And that's funny to say because this existed before the ratings system. Oh, really? So it was a Sunday matinee. (laughs) And I think it was Roger Ebert who has a really funny review about just all of the crying children that were in the theater. (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, because like you'd be going out for a nice day with your family and you'd be seeing this movie. (laughs) And at the time, other horror movies were like Creature from the Black Lagoon or those 50s flying saucer ones where they're equally funny and they're not really scary in the true sense. They're kind of shocking. Super realistic either. So then when you come from that and suddenly you're seeing corpses eat people, uh, that must have been uh, that must have been something. For all of these movies, like we were talking about Psycho a little while ago mm-hmm. too, I would have loved to have experienced it new at the time. For sure. We'll never, we'll never know what that was like. No, and having that be the height of like technology and like sophistication and like new cutting edge stuff. And this was in a lot of ways. It also, it wasn't because it seemed when it came out, it was a low budget movie and people Mm -hmm. found it kind of rough and amateurish in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. you love Gone with the Wind. Yes. Which came out 30 years earlier and looks better in a lot of ways, right? Okay. When you put it into perspective, I was going to actually ask you about this, like not when we were recording the podcast, but I forgot, Um, like what other things would have come out that I would know in that time frame. And we watched Psycho. Mm -hmm. Psycho's before this as well. Really? Quite a bit before. Okay. So then it does show as like a very low budget movie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of that low budget stuff adds to it in a way. Hmm. Like I always go on and on about how independent films and horror films are linked in a really special way and how that independent filmmaking spirit is perfect for horror films. And I think this is a good example of that. Right. But if I could just go back, I'm kind of all over the place. (laughs) That's okay. We were talking about seeing this new, the idea of corpses coming back to life and eating people. Mm -hmm. That's so brilliant. Yeah. That's such a good thing. And just to think like, they just made that up. It wasn't years and years of stories like what if we saw a movie now where someone said like oh what if people die but then their spirits live on and we'd never heard of a ghost before you'd be like wow that's amazing how did you come up with that because we've had that for like 60 years now ghosts no not ghosts zombies oh yes (laughs) so it's not new for us (laughs) yeah but to think that i couldn't think of something more disturbing to come up with oh that's crazy yeah that would have been so terrifying to be someone sitting in a theater and experiencing this, like, creepy, like, almost sci-fi thing for the first time. I mean, nuts. And I guess I just want to keep going on and on about how Romero came up with this idea. But I don't know what more we could say that he came up with such a brilliant thing. And it shows how brilliant it was because we are still using all the conventions he yeah. made in one movie. 
And we're, we've made hundreds of movies about this exact same thing. Which is crazy when you think about it. Like, yeah. it's absolutely crazy that we, 60 years later, it's still such a huge part of, like, movie culture. You get probably a zombie movie a year still. So what you're saying is it's very important and you kind of love it now, huh? Um, I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it's very important. Let's talk a little bit about the look of this movie. So do you think the look of it is kind of one of the things that pulled you out a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think that it was um, not, I don't want to like hate on the special effects or anything because like the makeup was good. It was just really interesting to see uh, the difference between what we see as zombies now where they're like pretty brain dead, but they bite you. Mm -hmm. And then right at the beginning of the movie when um, Barbara is, locking herself in the car the zombie has like the foresight to pick up a brick and try the handle yeah so they're like so much more alive than they are now like we've really dumbed them down yeah i remember when the Zack snyder dawn of the dead remake came out or 28 days later and everyone's like oh the zombies run now that's crazy but really when we started out with night of the living dead they were kind of in between yeah like those zombies could use tools they were still kind of like slow and shambling but not quite to the extent of later zombie movies so they kind of reverted and then gained strength yeah early zombies were tool users apparently yeah I found it really interesting that that was like the origin of zombies is that they were tool users and that they had like some kind of problem solving ability, whereas modern zombies are like dumb and run into walls and, you know, just flail their arms around until they catch somebody and then bite them. Right. So it's it, it was very cool. And that was one of the things that I liked about the movie was that you kind of see how much things have changed, but that this is like the very beginning. So one other thing that I liked in this movie was the fashion. Um, I think that 60s look is super fun. And I wish that uh, those like wig headband hairpiece things. Oh, yeah. There was a name for it that you told me. It looked really cool because, you know, there's almost no way to tease that kind of volume into your hair unless you just put more hair on your head and i i love that and i love all the little dresses and the um the like trench coats like but all the women had a trench coat um but yeah no i loved the look of it i loved um like the costuming in it and uh, i i just there were so many aspects of this movie that looked so cool that um i feel like i can forgive some of the like hooky campiness so you said you liked the makeup that's one thing i disagree on i think the makeup was pretty bad. oh really just like dark circles around people's eyes and now they're a zombie yeah i i don't know i guess I liked the variation. I think I've seen some zombie movies where, like, they're all dressed in normal clothes or they're totally dressed in, like, rags. And it, it it's, like, kind of an all or nothing. Whereas this one, like, everyone had different outfits on. There was a naked person. There was, like, someone in just, like, boxer shorts. And I think in this movie, they do make the distinction that it's the recently dead Mm -hmm. who come back to life. So there's no just walking skeletons and people who are decomposed. So everyone's either prepared for a funeral or they are maybe getting their autopsy done and that's why they're naked or something, something along those lines. That was cool. And I really liked 
I really liked that they paid attention to that. Maybe not so much the makeup because you're right. Like they were just they were just dirty, and then you're a zombie. <laughs> How did you feel about it being in black and white? Because that's one thing that makes this hard to determine the age of. Because in '68, when this came out, very few movies were still in black and white. Right. I think the last Best Picture winner to be in black and white was in 1960, The Apartment, perhaps? Right. Sam says that's right, so we're going to go with it. Okay, yeah. So (laughs) really, the majority of movies, the vast majority, were in color at this point. But they Mm. chose black and white, not for the artistic merit, but because it was much cheaper for them, and this was low budget. But I think it works artistically. Was that like Psycho, too? Didn't you say that Psycho chose that? Yes, they were going much more low budget. Psycho, technically an independent film as well, but yeah. you had Alfred Hitchcock right. doing it, like, so it's not... He is not like, an independent, like, yeah. <laughs> he's still got the star power behind him to sell a movie. Yes. Yeah, so that one chose to, to be black and white as well. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about shooting in black and white, you can use chocolate sauce for blood. Oh, yeah, you just need the, you just need the like, darkness... Yeah, both the of them, both yeah. of these movies use chocolate sauce. That's so funny. And any black and white movie that I've done that had blood in it, just chocolate sauce. It's so much easier to work with. Have you done a lot of black and white movies? A couple. Oh, okay. So do you feel like that added to like a timelessness almost of this? Kind of, yeah. It did make, like you said, it made it hard to pinpoint when it was from. And I think that, uh, I don't think that when it was from would have kind of influenced my thoughts on this i think that i knew that this was like the beginning of zombies i knew that it was an old movie and that's really all that like mattered um so having it be in black and white like black and white isn't super my favorite to watch um but i think that it definitely added to some of those scenes where the lights were off or like it really helped kind of transition between creepy and like and safe and that kind of thing I wonder if when it came out, they took the black and white differently because, like I said, most movies were in color at this point, but something that was still in black and white were news reports on television. Oh. So the news was in black and white, and Night of the Living Dead is in black and white, and the way this movie is composed a lot of the time is pretty stark and realist in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. So I wonder if having that and news reports be the only black and white things in a lot of people's lives, if that kind of led lent itself to an authenticity of this movie that it seems more real right because yeah news is real and Mm -hmm. that would be the most real thing that they're getting in black and white well the other thing they're getting a lot of are black and white news reels from the vietnam war right so anything in black and white at that time would have been very scary Mm -hmm. and very real feeling i i could see that being terrifying if that's all that you're seeing in black and white right now and then this black and white movie about zombies and death and murder like i think that that would be totally terrifying and i think that's something that we lose watching it now yeah probably yeah because like black and white to us is just older movies Do you feel the special effects as far as when we finally get to see the ghouls eating someone? Did that work for you? I think it was uh, it was less gross than it usually is, like than the movies that I've seen recently. Um, I think that. I can appreciate just how new this concept was back then. So that would have just been like shocking to see someone bite another person and like pull, you know, chunks out of them. I loved when they were finally eating someone. So first of all, we've been hearing about this for a while. 
the first time we see one of the zombies, one of the ghouls, we mm-hmm. could think that it's just one crazy guy. Right. And it's a good while before we see a group of them. And we don't see any actual violence yet. But then we hear the news report, the radio report about, and they've been devouring the flesh of their victims. Yeah. That must have been so scary. I think that's pretty, pretty terrifying now. That would be, yeah. One thing that I really appreciated about this movie is how the news reports that happened throughout started as like... Oh, we have a mass murder in this county. Yeah, a and group of they assassins. They, they don't called it, know right? what's going on. So they're equating it to something that they're familiar with, right? So like murder. And then it could be a gang, could be, you know, but it's spreading really quickly. So they're like, maybe it's some kind of like revolt. And then it's, it like gets crazier and crazier. And then they finally get to see one and see what's happening. And then they slowly like catch on to the fact that it's zombies or ghouls. And um, I really liked that because I feel like nowadays when we watch something, it's, it's too easy to jump to zombies because everybody knows about zombies. Right. Right. Like it's, it's like, oh my God, the undead. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then it was like, uh, we have mass murder. Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny when they're referred to as assassins. Yeah. Because that's not what you think of when you think of a zombie. But, but when you don't know what's going yeah, on, there's just better. murder in the streets. And exactly. that's all you know. Yeah. So I, love, I loved that part because I was like, no, exactly. Like, I was thinking about it the next day. And I was like, exactly. You wouldn't know what zombies were. So your first assumption would be something that you know, which is like just a murderer. And so many zombie movies, this one included, one of my favorite parts is when people are piecing together that, like, oh, people are dying and coming back to life. Yeah. And then trying to figure that out, and it just doesn't work in their brains, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I loved when you actually get to hear that one news report when they finally say, and they're devouring the victims. Mm -hmm. And even when we hear that, we still don't get to see it for quite a while. It's not until... The one couple dies in the car. I think that's the first time we actually get to see them eating a person. Yeah. And when they walk away, they have full bones. Yeah. And that seemed especially gross to me. And when they were pulling off the flesh, it would be also like gristle and tendons. and. Yeah, no, that was pretty gross. That was pretty gross. And that was very real. And um, I, I liked that this is the first time we're seeing zombies ever. And they're like really going for it. I feel like with Psycho and movies like that, there's a lot of implied, like, violence and that kind of thing. With the shadow and just flashes and that kind of thing. This was like, now you're going to watch these zombies eat these people. And you're going to see them pull stuff off the bones. And it's going to be real gross. And when this came out, it may have been the most disturbing movie ever made in the United States to that point. Like, I can't think of one that that was more so than this one. But... I like that the violence in this movie starts with the familiar and then goes to these very, like, uncomfortable places. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Johnny at the beginning yeah. who says, they're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> yeah. I love that bit. I had always heard that as a kid way before I ever saw the movie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's like a, a saying. And it was in all sorts of other things. This is a bit of a tangent, but this movie itself is already metatextual. We think of movies from 68, and especially a movie like this that's revolutionizing and creating new things. Mm-hmm. You don't think that it's playing on other things. But I assume Johnny there is trying to do a Vincent Price voice. I think that's what he's oh. going for. 
And also at the very beginning, we get the radio reports, which were a thing in lots of 50s movies. But here it starts and then they just turn it off. And I thought thought that was a clever play on expectations of horror movies of many years past. But maybe we don't, it doesn't come through now because we kind of assume this is one of those horror movies from years past. Right. We can't differentiate so well. I didn't even think about the fact that, like, this isn't, like, the world's first horror movie. But yeah, he probably is imitating Vincent Price, and he probably is, like, imitating things that they've seen in scary movies. Mm -hmm. I think they draw you in, or at least audiences of that time, to a false sense of security that you're going to think this is going to be one of those silly flying saucer movies and then what you get is something much more horrific yeah horrific in the truest sense (laughs) of horror uh like i was saying with johnny being killed at the beginning so he's making all these jokes about like they're coming to get you you're Uh gonna get eaten by this guy and then when it happens there's almost a sense of ironic justice to it it's not like it's deserved but Mm -hmm. it seems like warranted and fitting for a movie yeah. Right? Like, he was joking about them coming to get you, and then he gets eaten. And or she, killed. Yeah. There's, like, it's not deserved, but we get it as a movie thing. Mm-hmm. But then it goes to some much more disturbing places. Like, as the film progresses, the zombies, they're just, like, this uh, undifferentiated mass by this point. And the deaths seem much less deserved. I'm not saying that this movie kills people indiscriminately and I feel cheated as an audience member. I'm saying that they start off with letting us believe there's some sort of order to this. And by the end, especially with the last death of mm-hmm. Ben, we're just left to believe there there's no cosmic justice. The deaths aren't for anything. You didn't do something to deserve your death. It's just random and it's chaotic and it's brutal. Yeah, and it's, like, that unjustness that's, like, usually, I don't know, I don't want to say that, like, people in horror movies deserve to get murdered, but a lot of times when you have those, like, like, camping horror, is that a genre? Like slashers. Like slashers, okay, yeah, slashers where, like, you know, the sexy teens go to the boathouse and stay overnight, and then you die, and And it's, there's, like, not a reason that you're dying, but it's, like, you know, you're not these like normal everyday people no it's not like i was saying it's not deserved Mm -hmm. but in the world of the movie there's some sort of connection some sort of uh big overarching reason that those people die and that certain people survive yeah and that's what we think we're getting at the beginning of this movie because johnny kind of tempted fate by saying that so he dies Mm -hmm. and then the people in the basement they were isolationists and they were mean so then they die But then how it ends up, like, Barbara dies just out of nothing. Yeah. She just, Johnny just grabs her. Yeah. And I love that it was Johnny, too. Yeah. You get that moment when Barbara realizes who it is, and she just kind of freezes and Johnny gets her. Yeah. But then when you get down to Ben's death, it's the worst death that we could have imagined. Like, Mm -hmm. if he had been eaten by the zombies, that would have made more sense to a few. That was, like, really hard to watch. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that later. Okay. One of the things that seemed very sudden and abrupt was when Judy and Tom, like, blew up in the truck. Like, it was really interesting because I almost wasn't expecting anyone to die any other way. Right. So it seemed very, like, jarring to have someone just, like, die by fire. 
Because they had such a bad plan. They yeah. didn't have a plan. No, and she we're ran used... out of safety. Yeah, we're used to these zombie movies where they all get locked together, and then they come up with a plan, and then they execute the plan to varying degrees of success. Yeah. But this was just a shit show. They didn't oh, know what they were doing. Oh, it was a total shit show. And they had a plan, and then they didn't follow the plan, and then, like, then they blew up and set on fire. And it was crazy. And that was, like, one of the most shocking parts of this movie because I was not expecting anyone to die by anything but zombies. So how would you characterize the the violence in this movie to wrap up that thought? Um, I think it's a pretty violent movie. It's really interesting to watch some of the dynamics inside the house once everybody's kind of, like, out in the open. You um, really see the... Uh, Harry, the older gentleman, you really see him trying to become the leader and you really see him like almost becoming a dictator because he really wants to like take charge and he wants his family to be on top and he wants them to survive and he thinks that by taking charge he will make sure that they survive. And it felt very um like forceful and uh it was really interesting to see how far he was willing to go to keep that going. Um, and then also people just doing violent things to survive, like killing zombies, like using guns, like um, beating people back with like shotguns and that kind of thing. Like it was really interesting to see um, how violent this movie was, but a lot of it seems justified. Would you say that in the human's excitement to destroy their enemies they essentially risk destroying themselves and the zombies are but a reflection of their humanity um well i hadn't gotten that far yet but uh you're probably correct (laughs) there's a line in the remake of the movie which i don't think is in this one but in that movie barbara looks out at the zombies and she says they're us we're them and they're us which I feel like they didn't need to hit on the head so clearly, but I think this movie gets to that point. Yeah. That these zombies are are definitely a reflection of humanity. I think that's why the zombie is such a enduring villain, if you could call them a mm-hmm. villain, because they're not evil on their own. They're yeah. mindless. But what's the scariest thing about them is that they are a... Uh, a reflection of humanity and kind of a reflection turned on its head because it's all of the most terrible things that we right. could imagine. Yeah. Because there's nothing more taboo than than cannibalism, right? That is, now we've gotten to the point where it's almost silly, but to yeah. think about it as it, what it actually is, like eating another human yeah. is like the worst thing, really. Yeah. I think cannibalism, yeah, we don't think of it as as serious as it is because like, it's very rare in our day and age that anyone so. would have to eat anyone else. And so you get those stories of, like, the Donner Party where they and, had to do it to survive. And those stories are still, like, such – are so well-known. Yes, today. exactly. My True Crime Book Club read a book about it earlier this year. And I think that those movies are like, okay, well, they did it to survive. So that was, like, justified. And then you see zombies and it's, like, funny. Like, it, it's like a – horror theme is zombies so you're like okay well they're zombies so they can't help it whereas it's not as scary um because it doesn't really exist in the world that we live in i think zombies are also successful as a movie villain because they're between a villain and 
like a force of nature. They're more like a disaster movie in a lot of ways than a traditional horror movie. Because if you're fighting Dracula, he's evil, he has his weaknesses, and you plan accordingly. That doesn't really work in a zombie movie. Oftentimes, and in this one included, the villains of the zombie movie are other people. Right. Like what you were talking about with Harry and Ben, <laughs> that argument. Harry's the villain. He's yeah. the biggest villain in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And he will do absolutely anything he needs to to survive, which makes him scary. Yes. And I remember watching this movie at other times being like, why would someone just be like that? That doesn't make any sense. And today in 2020, I'd be like, yeah, that's exactly how people are. We've, exactly. We've learned that... Given the opportunity, people will fuck over anyone else to save themselves. Exactly. And that's sad that we're coming to that realization now. Yeah. And that's another reason that this movie still is uh, very prescient, I would say. Absolutely. No, there were definitely some moments in it where I'm like, there was a lot of tension and there was, um, like, it wasn't even pointed out that Ben went was black like it wasn't pointed out it wasn't spoken oh, but about you were just waiting for harry to say the n-word but you were just waiting oh my god for that moment when he said you bastard i was like oh he's gonna say it i've yeah. seen this movie and i was like he's gonna say the N-word. <laughs> yeah because that's what he's thinking but we'll save all that because i definitely like in most movies have a lot to say about uh the race relations in this one. Oh, absolutely i'd expect nothing less but going back to we were talking about how this is, of course, the first zombie movie, zombies in the sense that we know. Yeah. But it also kind of created the pandemic movie. There were mm-hmm. some before, but a lot of the tropes were started in this one. But in disaster movies now, the hero like survives at the end and then there's a happy outcome because the disaster's over. And this one, we just get just tragedy at the end. Yeah. He doesn't save the world. No, and you don't know if they've conquered all the zombies or if it's just going to continue to spread and this was just like one bad night the night of the living dead exactly it seems like things are done by the end it kind of it seems that way. it seems like they're trying to wrap it up and with the title too it's the night of the living dead it was yeah. just the one just the one night i feel like if this movie was now which it's been made so many times over but I feel like it would be like Night of the Living Dead 2, Night of the Living Dead 3, like right one right after another, because you could just keep that pandemic story going. Oh, do you not know? What? About Dawn of the Dead? No. And Day of the Dead? No. And there's more, like Romero kept going. Oh. Dawn of the Dead is maybe my second favorite zombie movie after this one. Really? Yes. And the remake of Dawn of the Dead is maybe my third favorite. Like the two Dawn of the Deads are very good. Oh. Uh, Dawn of the Dead is about uh, capitalism and consumerism. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. So I thought it would be really good, and, and it is. It is. <laughs> it was quite a bit later, though. Oh, okay. As far as sequels go, but this wasn't a time where people would pump out sequels like we do today. So on this podcast, we like to not just review, but we go into a little bit of analysis on the movies as well, especially if I'm forcing you to, like like this one's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> You're not forcing me. I'm enjoying this. Okay. So thank far. You. So far. <laughs> um, I often mention how the 70s are my favorite 
time in American cinema or in, in right. cinema as a whole. The American 1970s films are are brilliant, I think. And we say 70s, but it's really a period that starts in 1968 and goes through to like 79 or so. Okay. So this I would include in that. Although this is a very 60s movie, it's definitely of that time. Mm. And like I was saying, when we watched The Shining or Dog Day Afternoon, there's a real focus on the crumbling of American institutions. Right. And I think that's definitely relevant in this one as well, because you kind of see this movie as a reaction to the 60s counterculture, and it's kind of failure. I don't want to say that the the hippies in the 60s and the civil rights movement is a failure because they did so much good work. Yeah. But aren't we having the same arguments today in 2020 as they were in 68? Very true. And I feel like at this point, lots of people like Romero were already becoming disillusioned. Mm -hmm. They realized that their goodwill and willingness to accept all types of people is not universally held, and they weren't able to convince everyone. We're in the Vietnam War at this point. So this movie shows like the breakdown of a lot of institutions. First, you have uh, the family unit, mm-hmm. right? We have the one nuclear family in this, the Coopers who are mm-hmm. in the basement, and it breaks down as epically as anything could with the daughter killing her mother and eating her parents yeah right so if that's not saying that like yeah the family isn't quite what it used to be nothing (laughs) (laughs) that's true that's true there's definitely um kids being more independent during this time and seeking their own thoughts and i think that you could use little zombie girl as like a a, like a parent's view almost of what their children are turning into Mm mm-hmm and I think Did that's, I get it? I think that's something we're going to touch on very soon as well. <laughs> but also, like, the very idea of death no longer applies. Right. And that just turns the world upside down. Mm-hmm. And that's still, I keep going back to it, like, it's such a great idea to, like, how could you come up with one idea for a horror movie that would change the entire world? And that is death not meaning what it used to. Right. There's even this one line... It's someone on the radio, and they're saying the time for funerals is over. I can't remember how he phrases it, but he phrases it in a very condescending way of like, if you thought the funeral was good for air or anything, first of all, it wasn't, but those times are behind us. Right. So like the idea that funerals are no longer a thing, and that one actually like hurt a little bit because in 2020, we've uh, funerals are no often longer no a longer thing. a thing. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The way that he says it in the movie, though, is very much like like a losing of religion, too, because funerals yes. are a very religious thing, right? And there are a few things like, um, like the wake and like sitting up and watching the body and sleeping in the same room as the body to ensure that they're either dead or, you know... Or grave robbers wouldn't or come. Or that grave robbers wouldn't come. That's why wake started in the first place. And... It, it's really interesting to see that now they're like, forget all those like old notions of yours. This is what we're doing now. And that's burning bodies. And that's the theme of the movie is forget what you're used to. That's not that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. We've come to an impasse and this movie makes it so very literal. Yeah. What was going on with the culture at the time. So, yeah, religion no longer what it used to be, because how could you be a religious person 
who believes in heaven when you've seen reanimated corpses eating people. Exactly. Exactly. And that, like, death isn't a thing anymore and you can't do all your ritual. And it, it's quite the thing to think about when you think about that and then also think about what it's like now in 2020. Yeah. Society was crumbling in this movie and they were dramatizing what they were actually seeing out in the world of things falling apart and yeah. just kind of taking it to the next step. And a lot of this, of course, not the reanimated corpses, but a lot of it doesn't seem that far off. Yeah, exactly. The crumbling of society that's happening currently feels like we're only a couple steps away from reanimated corpses at this point. <laughs> yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. One thing that they still had faith in was the media, though, because mm -hmm. whenever the news reports would come on, they would all crowd around and listen to it. And that's the only constant. And we don't even have that. No. We cannot trust our no. media. <laughs> no, and a lot of it's coming from social media now. And maybe that's just the new thing, right? Like, there's a lot of um, unpublicized voices in the media that are turning to social media in order to get their information out. For better or worse, because a lot of the times it's good stuff. Most of the time it's not. Yeah. But there is one institution that is successful and seems to continue its strength throughout the movie and get stronger. And that's not a good thing because it's just guys with guns. Mm. White men with guns shooting indiscriminately. But that is doesn't something... happen now. Yeah. That's something that at the end of the movie, we're led to believe like that is going to continue. Mm -hmm. We may not have death like we used to. We may not have the family. We may not have religion. But what we will have are white men with guns controlling things. Ugh. And I think that is no coincidence on Romero's part. He's quite liberal in his views that come out in other movies, and I don't think any of those things were accidents to be put in there. Yeah. That's, uh... I just want everyone to know that I'm being sarcastic. That is very much happening now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I found that ending very jarring and i think it is because it's so prevalent right mm -hmm. like and it's something that's currently happening in our society and i think that um that's going to be jarring no matter when you see it well let's analyze things a little bit more before we get into the racial stuff and what the zombies mean what do you have any mean? <laughs> do you have any theories on what the zombies can represent well, I feel like when I was talking about, like, parents and children and in this time in the 60s and the 70s, there was definitely a move away from having um, kind of subservient children who just relied on their parents for all their world information as the world was slowly kind of opening up and there was more world information it definitely seems like this would be something where like the parents would see the kids as zombies and the kids might see the parents as zombies i definitely think that's a, a legitimate reading the idea of this generation of americans seeming so far removed from mm -hmm. their parents that they are completely other than and by 1968 we kind of feel like that movement has not failed but isn't entirely successful the old generation is still clinging to power mm -hmm. and that's kind of what the end of the movie shows that the zombies are are defeated it seems to me at least mm -hmm. and that's another thing that kind of relates to today 
right? Like the youth are so empowered today and well, large amount of the youth are very empowered today. And it feels like we're fighting against this old guard that is still holding on to power. Do you know who that old guard is? It's those... It's them. It's the hippies. Oh what God. happened to you guys? What happened so to you guys? This is a bit of a, a divergence again. <laughs> but shouldn't all of those radicals of the 60s be mm-hmm. the people in power now? Oh, exactly. Exactly. You were the guys who started this. Why aren't you on board now? We're just continuing Fuckers. the legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm very I'm very angry about that. No, I am too. <laughs> about the promise of the 60s that has yet to be fulfilled. True. And I think this movie is as well. Yeah. And the fact that we're trying to fulfill that is the youth of today. We're youth still, right? Uh, I don't know about that. I'm not. (laughs) You might be. (laughs) Have you ever heard the theory about left-wing vampires and right-wing zombies? No. So there is a correlation over the last five or six presidencies that if there is a democratic president in the united states there is a rise in vampire movies but if there's a republican president there's a rise in zombie movies oh and the zombies have often represented a unthinking mass of brainwashed mass yeah which is what left-leaning people kind of believe the right wing to be right and the vampire represents a um foreign elite which is what the right-leaning people believe the left to be hmm. and that's i think like, that's very true yeah. actually now that you break it down like that i could totally see that being a thing so really there's there's a rise in vampire movies or zombie movies depending on the president huh. that held true for about 20 years i'm not sure if it's still the case i but. was gonna say what about in the last like two presidents well, I think with the current one, there's gonna, there's just no cinema being made. They're no. like, we don't know what to no. do with this. <laughs> Our life is horror. <laughs> there's nothing scarier than what's going on in real life right now. Again, I'm not going to just talk about American politics. This got real political. Oh, it's going to get more political. <laughs> Excellent. But before we get more political, let's get more religious. Okay. Let's take a, a Christian view on zombies. Are you familiar with Corinthians 15? Isn't Corinthians like love is blind? I think that's in there too. But uh, 15, 51 through 52 says, Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Are they talking about zombies? There's zombies There's in the Bible. There's zombies in the Bible? Well, there are zombies in the Bible. Oh, I'm like, so excited. Jesus is the original zombie. I realize I'm yelling into my mic, but I'm like so excited by that. <laughs> Good, because I think you covered up me saying Jesus is the original zombie, which people will get angry about. <laughs> which you just said again. Oh. Well, I guess he was the second. Wasn't Lazarus before him? Sure. I don't know much about Lazarus. I think he was. Sunday school education really failed me. <laughs> I think he's a zombie, right? Or does he just live a long time? I thought he died and came back. Maybe. There was a lot of resurrection in the Bible. Yeah, I think Lazarus was resurrected and then, of course, Jesus. 
So I think it's funny that there's like a Bible quote that makes me like Corinthians even more because there's a quote about zombies and then there's like the classic wedding quote of patient, love is kind. (laughs) Um, And I think that that is like awesome that one Bible, like one book of the Bible can be like so cool. Oh, the Bible's fucking metal. There's a lot of like (laughs) brutal stuff in there. Oh, there's some brutal shit in there. Yeah. Yeah. What if we want a a Kafka-esque reading of zombies? Okay, I'm not super familiar with Kafka, but go for it. But Kafka-esque in the metamorphosis side. Usually when you're talking about something being Kafka-esque, it's uh, layers and layers of bureaucracy oh. that border on absurdity. But in this case... Um, like the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he wrote a lot about. Oh, okay. Um, but in this case, there's this uh, uncanny transformation of human beings into some sort of... Uh, non-human form in this case zombies just like gregor samsa was transformed into a beetle it carries with it like all sorts of identity politics and about what it means to be a human and the terror of alienation because you are seeing your potential self when you're seeing those zombies like we were saying before it's a reflection of uh of humanity like an upside down mirror in a way Although I know mirrors, if you turn upside down, will still reflect the same way. I'm being poetic here. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. a dark upside down it. mirror. Yeah, it's a dark upside down mirror. Oh, that's good. I like that. Good, good. good idea, Samantha. Thank you. And then there's very present dangers that they were concerned with as well. Uh, nuclear fallout. We're not that far from Cold War times. Actually, True. it is Cold War, but I feel like they were less about the nuclear fallout at this point. It was like the beginning of it. I think this was closer to the end. I thought the 50s were nuclear fallout time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, by, sorry. I'm getting my decades mixed up. <laughs> yeah. And by this point, they were seeing what the actual wars are, and they're realizing it's not going to be a nuclear war between the USSR and the Americans, but rather they are just going to kill all sorts of Asian people who are far away and fight their wars there, where the Americans and Soviets don't have to kill themselves. Hmm. So the... Fear of nuclear fallout, like we saw more in Planet of the Apes, which I think is right around the same time, actually. Is that? The idea that nuclear fallout and a nuclear war would just change people, mutate them. There were lots of movies about mutants with... Uh, this was the same year. Oh. As Planet of the Apes? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So things like that, I Am Legend, have those kind of ideas to them. Uh, you could equate the zombies with the russians they're often conceived by americans as like a big horde of barbarians right Mm -hmm. that are going to devour the american way of life right but in the end they don't really give you an answer and i think i like that because they have those lines about oh there was um the satellite that went around venus and came back with radiation but I don't think that's what it is. And it is kind of thrown away. It's like, maybe it's that. Who knows? It was kind of like a throwaway line. Yeah. But I feel like if you're watching this and you're really scared and you're not going to be doing like the deep thought and writing a novel about it like you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that is enough to kind of like placate someone. The yeah, average definitely. viewer, right? Like, oh, it was just radiation and we're not going to be like subject to that. So we're good. <laughs> yeah, good point. Maybe that makes people who need an answer. Almost like a lullaby, right? Like yeah. it just, it calms you and it makes you feel like it's way far away. But if you're like an active horror watcher and you're like really into like what it means and like archetypes and that kind of thing, then that's like a throwaway line. You don't even bother with it. 
Good point. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that because I always didn't like that they put that in there. But now when you put it that way, I kind of see that it's for those people. But if you're going to look into it, you're going to look into it regardless of if and we you're going to an look past that and not. you're going to forget about that line. Yeah, which is what I did because I totally forgot about that line. But I remember thinking at the time, being like, "Huh, interesting that they're like almost explaining it so quickly." Because mm-hmm. it was like mid movie, wasn't it? Something like that. I think it was towards the end, but yeah, around. But there. it was like mid broadcast too, so yes. it was it was kind of jumbled up in a lot of information, and I found it really interesting that they just kind of threw that out there, and it was never kind of explored and then i forgot about it because i was starting to analyze it from someone who's seen zombie movies before (laughs) yeah and i think at the end they do allow it to just be what you want Mm -hmm. and they're allowing you to take the metaphor into a lot of different ways yeah i feel so smart today you stand so smart today i feel like i'm like checking all the boxes i feel like i'm gonna get an a plus in podcasting So another thing that I like to bring up in a lot of our movies, and specifically horror movies most of all, because they are the most guilty of this often, is the portrayal of women in film. So I'm going to give you first crack at this. What did you think about the the portrayal of women in this Um, movie? So I made two notes during this movie, because I find I do better without notes when we're talking about it after. But... um, I said, zombie has the foresight to try to open the handle and grab a brick, which we already talked about. My second one was, I liked Barbara at the beginning, but hated her pretty quick. <laughs> Why did you hate her? Because um, she felt like a stereotype of women. She felt like that ditzy blonde who falls down and gets eaten by zombies. Like, And I think that that's me having watched zombie movies, right? But I think... That women in this movie, they do two things. There's the really obvious um, kind of deferring to their husband. But then underneath that, they're quiet leaders, which um, you kind of see with Mrs. Cooper and um, with Judy. Mrs. Cooper is calming her husband. She's kind of trying to make peace with the other people in the house. She's checking on her daughter she's kind of organizing everybody quietly below the surface and i feel like nobody really realizes how much she's doing to kind of calm everybody um judy is one of the first people to kind of come up and talk to barbara and then barbara is catatonic for most of it and i feel like she doesn't add much to the story after after those first few scenes well let's go through each of them so let's start off actually with helen cooper yes i liked her and i feel like she doesn't get the recognition i liked her a lot yeah because her husband's an asshole Mm -hmm. and she knows her husband's an asshole and she tells her husband that he's being an asshole yes and that is not seen all that often Now, it's going to sound like I'm defending these things, and maybe I am in a small way, but yeah, first of all, I'll just straight up say, portrayal of women in this movie, not great. Not great. They're not portrayed as strong characters, and that's something that they really tried to do in the remake of it, the 1990 version. Barbara is very different. The biggest difference in the whole movie is the portrayal of Barbara. That's good. But, so now that I've said... Yes, the portrayal is bad. I think it is more nuanced, perhaps, than we think. Okay. So, first of all, like we were talking about Helen, I think we could say both that she is a 
a well-rounded character. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get much to do, and she dies very easily. So yeah. that's the bad side. The good side is she calls out her husband on his bullshit, and there's a lot of bullshit. And she's like a quiet organizer. Yes. she She's really calming to everybody, and she's really kind of open to everybody, and she does absolutely everything that she can to make sure that everyone's safe. Yeah, she's just somewhat rational, but not a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Judy is whatever, but Judy and Tom are both just there for Mm -hmm. a lot of it neither has very strong characteristics good nor bad Mm -hmm. they're just around i don't really have a take on judy because she just doesn't do enough she's She's, fine i appreciated her because she was less blank and kind of empty-headed as barbara okay so barbara is the point where a lot of people are like look how women are portrayed and it's not great Mm mm-hmm I'm not going to defend the portrayal of women, but I'm going to defend the reactions of Barbara because I don't think she acted all that badly. She's not helpful in any way. Absolutely. But imagine this. Your biggest fear in the world is corpses coming after you. But Mm -hmm. when would that ever happen? And you've never even seen a movie about it. It's set up early in the movie during the graveyard scene that she is terrified of this situation already. Mm-hmm. And that's just being there on a sunny afternoon. Right. She's been scared of this her whole life. So much so that her brother's been bugging her about it her entire life. Right. Too. So we know this is the scariest thing in the world to her. And then somehow it comes true. Yeah. She watches her brother die and corpses reanimate themselves. And then people are angry that she can't contribute. But yeah, that makes perfect sense. If you saw that happen, and then you need an hour to get over it, that's fine. <laughs> okay, I I I will give Barbara that. I think that's very true, and I think that um, she's traumatized. And I think if you think about it from the point of view of a viewer who has literally never even thought of this as being a thing, except for maybe from like a, a Corinthian standpoint, right? Like where, you know, reanimation or... Um, resurrection. I think that, yeah, I, I would almost expect more people to be sitting on that couch catatonic. And I wonder if this was a male character, if people would be like, oh, that was like a really interesting exploration of PTSD or mm-hmm. how people deal with things in their own mind without any external shows. But because it's a woman, we're especially hard on her. And mm-hmm. I wonder if it's a sexist character that was written or if we're the ones who are putting that on barbara who's just are we the assholes are we the assholes or is romero Hmm. that's what i'm saying interesting because i think a lot of the things she does and gets flack for like she crashes that car after driving for like two seconds Mm -hmm. we don't know if she's ever driven a car before in her life it's true And it doesn't have power steering, and it's not even on, so she's just kind of coasting. And those giant cars, it's hard to turn the wheel. Those are big cars. And we don't know if she's ever driven before. Just imagine if someone you love, like a parent or a brother, died in a regular circumstance. If you just watch them die of a heart attack, it makes sense that you would be on autopilot and not listening to things, right? Let alone if they were killed by a zombie (laughs) and then eaten or whatever. And then later when the zombies get her, people say, like, she doesn't even run away because she's frozen because she sees her brother there. 
that's I think that's a legitimate reaction. Uh-huh. If you see the reanimated corpse of your brother coming at you and you take two seconds to freeze, that doesn't seem crazy to me. No, no, you're right. And you're uh, you're bringing me back on Barbara's side. Still, it is women in this movie are oh. generally passive. Very passive. Yeah. So not a great representation, but I do think that Barbara is more true to life than I think she gets credit for. True. And what you said about wanting like heroines and women who are more empowered, I think that just comes from me wanting or me like seeing movies that are more modern, right? Like that's kind of just what you expect from movies now. And also it's that there were a lot of movies where women behaved in this way. So sometimes taken on its own, you could just say like, yep, that's a possible reaction. But when it's a part of a larger trope, Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes yeah. problematic. True. Beyond feminist readings, a lot of the time we look at the race relations in movies, and I think it's very relevant in this one. Yeah. So George Romero, the co-writer and director, essentially creator of this movie, has explicitly said that he didn't write this as a allegory for race relations in America at the time. Right. I don't believe him. It seems very obvious that that's what this is about. So if nothing else, it's at least a product of those conversations. Mm -hmm. Even if he's not saying it, Romero is definitely a product of the civil rights movement. So this movie was the first horror movie ever to have a black lead. Hmm. And Romero said, like, oh, I cast Dwayne Jones, I believe that's his name, who plays Ben. I cast him because he was the best actor. No other reason. It wasn't written as a black man. That's just, he was the best guy that showed up. And they didn't have a lot to choose from. But that act itself is very political, even if you're not trying to be. Mm -hmm. If you're the first person to put a black lead in a horror movie, that act already is taking a stance. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people out there are probably like, I don't want to hear about race stuff. This is a zombie movie. Romero didn't intend that. Here's why you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the original title of this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so this comes out in 1968 when Martin Luther King was murdered. Uh, Robert Kennedy was murdered. We had the 68 Olympics, which has the, oh, I forget those two athletes names when they were standing on the podium giving the black power salute with their fists raised that's this year um this is the same year that what's his name enoch powell did that rivers of blood speech saying that there's going to be a race riot and the streets are going to flow with blood that's the climate this is coming out in god that all sounds like so much like this year 68 was more intense than like we all go like 19 or 2020 it's so crazy but 68 was was worse it just like it's really ringing home for this year very true this was also a time where there just weren't black people on the screen unless their main point was being black right they're never just written as a character without their first characteristic being their race Mm mm-hmm And because this was written for just anyone and he happened to get it, we don't get that here. And I get how you could see that being non-political, but that is like the most political thing you could do. I appreciated that, though. Yeah, it was great. And he was great. Yeah. 
He was. And I, I really appreciated that he wasn't immediately presented as the black guy, right? Like, you don't see him as that one characteristic. He basically saves Barbara, does absolutely everything that he can to help her, and there is no interaction like you would kind of think would be in a movie that has a black male lead. And I think that this is really refreshing. I found it very refreshing to watch because it wasn't immediately obvious that that was what was going on. And anytime you did have a black man on screen, they would tend to be the most positive portrayal. Of course, thousands of very negative ones. Mm-hmm. But the most positive ones were, I can think of, are some of those early Sidney Poitier films where he was polite and competent, but never at the expense of a white person. Right. Until you get to Heat of the Night. But I'm not sure what year if that was, if it's before or after this. But that was a time when a black person could correct a white person. And that had never happened before. And in this movie, you have Harry being an asshole and Ben letting him know. Uh, Heat of the Night was 1967. So it was actually a year before. Okay, so that was the only other movie I could think of from the time when a black person could be smarter than a white person and let them know it. It just wasn't a thing that you could do in movies. And after those couple of movies, I'd argue it wasn't a thing you could do up until the last five years. Yeah. Because the portrayal of black people or just the amount of representation in cinema is still quite terrible. Yeah. Big strides in the last five, ten years, but still not great. Not great, no. Given all that, even if you're saying he didn't directly want to make it about race, Mm -hmm. this is definitely a product of that time and of Romero's own progressive leanings. Right. Because you said he was very progressive. I'd say so. But I also don't really read a lot of personal stuff about him. I'm going by what's in his movies. Right. Okay. And then the whole idea about zombies. Before this movie, zombies had only been slaves. Mm-hmm. And that word has a lot of connotation for yes. for American history and any movie dealing with uh, with a black person in it. Mm-hmm. So zombies had only been slaves up until this point, and the only black people in those movies had been slaves or kind of voodoo priests and priestesses. Right, exactly. To have that flipped and now have a black hero is big it's very big that's huge and like you said that is a very political thing very political statement being made by this movie and there's so many parts of this movie that you can wonder what they're talking about like they're always talking about uh that we might be outnumbered by them and that's the same kind of rhetoric that white people were using about black people a lot of the time exactly but here it's talking about about the zombies right they're going to overtake us. They're going to steal what's ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just in this case, stealing what's ours is their muscle tissue. And earlier in the movie, when Barbara meets Ben, I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into it, but it looks like a lot of the time we can't tell what she's scared of, if it's the zombies or if it's Ben. I felt like she was pretty okay with Ben. There's this one sequence where she had a knife and the way she places it isn't to be on guard from the door, but she places it between her and Ben. Like, I'm ready just in case. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't notice that. I felt very much like she wasn't scared of him and like he could have been any leading man in a movie. Hmm. 
Oh, and remember when Ben slaps her? Yes. That, I, I don't know if we can overstress how big of a deal that was for the mm-hmm. time. Because this is a time when this same decade, black men were killed for less than that. Yes. You could whistle at a woman and literally be murdered. Yeah. And here we have someone slapping her. And, yeah, well-deserved, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because she hit him first, he slaps her back. Yeah. Um, I That's one thing that I found very kind of refreshing. And I was like, oh, we're not taking a super racial approach to this, um, was when that happened. And that was kind of like really was the final thing for me where I was like, I find this movie very refreshing, especially for the time that it's from, because we're not getting those moments where, you know, he would be beaten or um, be categorized as something very specific, which is not what happens in this movie most of the time. And there's almost like a segregation going on within Mm -hmm. the house as well, right? Like, we're down here. I don't care what you're doing up there, but I'm the boss over here. And it was like a a separate but equal thing they're trying to do with uh, with the basement and the main floor. Where would you rather be, the basement or the main floor? I'd want to be on the main floor with the option of retreating to the basement, which is ultimately what happens. Exactly, yeah. You save the basement as a last resort, but you wouldn't want to just set up there and hope for the best. Exactly. I I totally agree. I think the basement is a last resort. (laughs) And isn't that like a microcosm for the United States that when there's something worse, we band together and fight off that because they're more foreign? But when the zombies aren't imminent, they just fight amongst themselves. Yeah. The the north of the top floor and the south of the basement. Right? Yes, exactly. And the only way they can ever unite for something is if there's a different common enemy. They can't just come together on their own. Exactly. Do you remember the news reports when they're talking to that, I guess, police chief? Mm-hmm. How did he come off to you? Um... Like a lazy authority figure. <laughs> this is probably the best way I can describe him. But yeah, it's like he didn't really care to get to the bottom of it. The language he used was very striking to me. Because he says, like, if you got a gun, shoot him in the head. If you don't, yeah, burn him up. No problem. And they didn't go out of their way to make him, like, especially redneck or anything mm-hmm. like that. But the language he used... Do you ever see the movie Mississippi Burning? No. It... It's reminiscent of the language used by racist police officers in their description of what to do when encountering black people. Right. And I don't think that's unintentional either. Yeah. This whole movie is just like so interesting when you really like break it down. And in case you're thinking like, well, you're going too far. You're reading a lot of things into it. Um, When... Dwayne Jones was driving home one day from the set. Mm-hmm. So in Pittsburgh, like not the South, not particularly rural or anything like yeah. that. But he was driving home. I can't remember who it was, but it was a um, a white co-star. Right. And he had spent the day like filming that scene where he like bashes a zombie's head in with a tire iron. And he was followed by a group of people brandishing a tire iron and taking swings at them. Oh, my God. So in case you're thinking like, oh, this is, they weren't really in that world or that we're removed from it now. We aren't now and they certainly were not then. That's crazy because, yeah, that's such a, it's just a direct correspondence with the movie. Yeah, and he remarked on on how 
surreal that moment was. And it brought a lot of things home for him. So even if Romero said like, oh, this wasn't explicitly about Mm -hmm. race, it was to a lot of the people making it. Oh, I bet. I bet, especially if that's your experience as a person. Well, I guess we should talk about that ending. Yeah. What did you think about it? Um, I found it very jarring and very disturbing. How quickly they do it, too. Like, I knew the Mm -hmm. ending was coming and I remembered the effect it had on me. But I thought there was more to it than just like, oh, there's someone, bang, and they just kill him. Yeah. They they don't even give him a moment. And this is a movie that earlier had given a good amount of time for Ben to move that corpse that he found in Mm -hmm. the house. They allow a moment like moving a dead body to have the appropriate amount of gravity and weight. Yeah. And to have that juxtaposed with... The hero of the story just being shot like nothing mm-hmm. was was especially jarring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely found, like you said, the quickness of that scene and how um, kind of because we spend most of the movie with just like a handful of people, having that many people charging in all of a sudden and taking someone down without even thinking about it. Um it was very hard to watch, and it was a really hard transition to make. Now, I don't believe the man who shot him shot him thinking he was a black human. No, I, don't I think believe so. he thought he was a zombie. Yeah. But a lot of people read that as like, oh, he just used an excuse to kill a black man, oh. which isn't a crazy notion. I don't think that's what it was, but I think there is a bit of ambiguity to it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, I think that that's something that you can like read into. Um, but I think that in that moment, if you're so scared and all you've been seeing all night is undead people. But were they scared? Were those men scared? Maybe not. Look at how they're portrayed. They're joking around. They're going, oh, there's one. Oh, I'll get him. Yeah. It. I'm having a hard time not just relating everything to today mm-hmm. but there's we hear so often about uh, an officer a guy with a gun who's like oh yeah i was really scared but then you see the footage and you're like you didn't look you that scared, scared. <laughs> yeah what about the photos at the end of this movie um i mean they definitely added to it it made it seem a little bit more true crimey did the photos remind you of anything in particular not something like a specific event, but they seemed like they made it seem very real at the end of the movie. Have you ever had the misfortune of seeing photos from lynchings? Yes. Oh, that's exactly what it was like. It was. I wrote a paper when I was in university about uh, about literature surrounding right. lynchings, and I did look at a lot of photos. I wish I hadn't, but it was it was part of it. And there are some really shocking similarities. Mm-hmm. Also, at this time, you had a lot of footage from the Vietnam War and not like standard war photos, but more things about atrocities that right. were being committed that look strikingly similar to a lot of the photos that were shown here. Wow. Again, that, I know he said it wasn't about that, but that can't be an accident to have all of those things line up like he that. He makes it really seem like it's about that. Mm-hmm. Everything in this movie. And that's not just you, like, reading into it too far. I think that there are so many things that are very obviously that. Those photos may have been the most disturbing part of the movie. To me, they were. 
for sure. He's moved with meat hooks. Yeah. And like the degradation of of this hero is it's real tough to watch. Mm -hmm. And that we're just getting these stark black and white photos. At first, they look like a zombie attack. When you have Mm -hmm. all of the officers taking his body, it looks like a zombie attack. But soon it starts getting a lot closer to lynching photography or the atrocities of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Well, I think I got through it as quickly as I could. (laughs) But do you have anything, anything more to say about the role race plays in this movie? I definitely think there's a lot of things that you can say about the zombies and them being representative of whatever unvalued, like, other race there is in whatever culture that you're in, right? Like, there's been genocide or wars based on us versus them for as long as, you know, time. So I think that it's really interesting to see it played out like this. And it's really interesting to kind of think of it through that lens of race specifically, not just like a a fun horror trope. I think it's important to note that all of the white people in this movie who die are killed by supernatural forces Mm -hmm. like zombies or in I guess an accident in that one case, but it was still based because of the zombies. Because of the zombies, yeah. But the thing, the only thing that can kill the one black character, and I have to say one black character, that makes me think even more that Romero did this intentionally. Because if there were just like one other black zombie or guy in the group, mm-hmm. then you'd be like, oh, that complicates things. But there are none. No. The one black character, the only thing that can kill him is white men with guns. Yeah. Yikes. All other movies that dealt with race relations in America to this point, and I don't think this explicitly does. It's all it's all subtext. They're never mentioning those things. Mm-hmm. But all of the other ones, that was always a clear plot point. It was about that. And all of those movies would end with some sort of reconciliation. Either the racist white guy would be like, you know what? You're all right. And then you can marry my daughter. I'm just thinking of, um, look who's coming to dinner. But um, <laughs> there's always some sort of reconciliation, unless mm-hmm. the point was to make the black person the villain, which was the other 50% of the movies with right. black people, which exactly. also happened. But there's no reconciliation in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's no release of that tension. They don't give us that happy ending. Romero gives us the sad and disturbing reality. Mm-hmm. That's what he leaves us with. Wow. That's why this movie's great. Uh, it's fine (laughs) like i said i think it's fine i really appreciate it for some of the things that it brings forward and makes you think about well right off the beginning we were talking about how influential this movie is i think it's like cabinet of dr caligari psycho night of the living dead are the most influential horror movies in my mind Mm -hmm. um probably other ones after that like halloween and but later than that it's hard to say because we don't have enough context yet right but some things that this movie gave us was the idea of the undead reanimated corpses the idea that they would eat flesh the idea that you can kill them with shooting them in the head right Um, the idea that a bite can turn you into a zombie right the trope of one person being sick the whole time and then eventually turning and it's a big surprise when they come up and kill someone yeah how many times have you seen that oh so many 
But this created the entire zombie genre. So rather than me telling you some fun zombie movies that can trace their roots back to Night of the Living Dead, we have some guests to do that for us. Yay, guests. Our first guest on our special Halloween episode is Film Rage, and they are reviewing the movie The Battery. It's time to feel the rage. Welcome to Film Rage, where we talk movies. This is a special zombie edition. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hello, Jim. Woo! And the man who loves the bags and the Robert cake. Hello, Murray. You're darn tootin'. He loves his bags. Ah, so with the introductions out of the way, let's rage on. Okay, well, this is a special edition uh, for the All the Horror podcast event, and we're doing this for our friends at I Love This. You should, too. And we're going to be talking about The Battery. Mur, let us know. All righty. Now I have a special place in my heart for this film. This has to do with the fact that I know the filmmakers. Well, at least I used to. Uh, 20 years ago, Jeremy Gardner and his friends made a trip from Kissimmee, Florida to South Dakota for a little bitty film festival that me and my friends were starting up. That first year, we held it at a local museum with a projection screen. Even then, I knew greatness when I saw it. Uh, It was a film called The Bags, about killer plastic grocery bags that flew through the air and killed people. They followed it up the next year with The Robert Cake, where Jeremy had to bake a cake with the ashes of his dead friend and eat it, and then get possessed. It was a performance that Bruce Campbell would have loved. Now, it took Jeremy and his pals Christian Stella and Ryan Winford 10 years to make another film, Mostly due to the fact they moved away from each other. But it was the battery. And well worth the wait, my friends. Even though I haven't seen them in 20 years, I feel a bit of pride at helping them on their path. Okay, on to the review. I love this film. I got a chance to see it at the Calgary International Film Festival in 2012. And with a packed audience. Unfortunately, Jeremy wasn't able to make it. But I got the chance to talk to his co-star, Adam Cronheim. Uh, these two had some amazing on-screen chemistry, and they went through hell together during the film. It started off a bit slow, as most single-camera films tend to be. It's clear from the beginning that these two didn't like each other very much, and not really our friends. That's what makes the journey so special. Uh, I didn't really recognize Jeremy with all his full-on beard until he started dancing around with a gun in his hand during the funniest scene of the film. Oh, there was the guy I remembered. Such a wave of emotions the characters went through, and the ending was epic. I wanted more. Well, maybe in the sequel. Well done, Mr. Gardner. Bryce, give it to us, baby. Jeremy Gardner's The Battery is the best zombie movie ever made. Character-driven film that sucks you in like no other film in the genre. The banter between Ben and Mickey is entertaining to say the least. The situations in this movie naturally evolve. There is a logic to the film, and it felt like if this ever happened, this is probably the way it would happen. It is a masterclass in combining tension and laughs. It has one of the most memorable scenes that I've ever seen in any movie. It is, of course, the movie involving Mickey and the fresh slut zombie as described in the credits. Let's just say that Mickey apparently finds this particular zombie quite arousing. This is an absolute gem of a film. The last half hour literally takes place inside a station wagon, and the fact that a movie can spend 30 minutes in that confined a space with nothing but the interaction between our two protagonists and continue to be super entertaining shows what a talented filmmaker and writer Jeremy Gardner is. 
If you watch this movie, however, do yourself a favor and stop playing it as soon as it fades to black and the credits start to roll. Please stop playing the movie. It has a perfect ending. But then for some reason they tacked on a scene within the end credits that kind of wrecks that perfect ending. So do yourself a favor and do not watch the scene in the end credits. That aside, this movie was darn near perfect. Fantastic characters that you genuinely care about, top-notch dialogue, and this is natural and very amusing. A story that is simple but sucks you in. A tone and pace that is perfect. Beautifully shot. And as an added bonus, there is quite a bit of walking in this masterpiece. <laughs> Ugh. This is the most Mondo zombie flick of all time, period. What say you, Jim? Well, like all great zombie movies, it's not just about the zombies. Like, just like the greatest zombie movie ever made, sorry, Brace, Night of the Living Dead, the battery is more about the human condition and how people slash humanity survives. Or doesn't survive this movie above all zombie films shows the humanity or lack thereof the humanity this film takes a lot from night not just because technically all zombies are spawned from night of the living dead but because all the major themes introduced in night are again reopened for discussion in the battery stay up or down, stay here, or wait, or run, etc., etc., etc. A direct link tonight is the times when they stay put and then shit goes wrong. And just like in Night, the Barbara character dies in the end of both those movies. The Battery is a great zombie film for many reasons, but mostly because in a zombie apocalypse, even someone you don't know well can be a good enough friend to kill you when you need them to, even if you don't want them to. The moral of the story is, in a zombie apocalypse, you are going to die eventually. And really, that's all that really matters. That's it for Film Rage this week. We hope you go and check out The Battery. And remember, always, Rage On! Rage On! Those were our friends over at Film Rage talking about The Battery. Rage On, boys. Have you ever seen this movie? I haven't. It sounds good. It is a low-budget American one. I think it's from 2012. But anything that can draw its lineage and pay thematic homage to Night of the Living Dead, I think I'm going to like. Well, let's hear another one. Our friend Tony from Flix X-Raid is going to be talking about a movie that we had mentioned a little earlier. Hi there, this is Tony from the Flix X-Ray Podcast, and I'm going to take a minute to talk to you about one of my favorite zombie movies, the Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Now, don't get me wrong, I am a lover of classic zombie cinema, but this movie has a special place in my zombie heart because of the fact that it was the first zombie film that I watched. So for me, this was my introduction into this genre. Um, and since then, I've become a big fan of zombie movies. I'm a big uh advocate for zombie survival plans or preparedness i have my whole zombie plan planned out um and i will tell you one thing it does not involve a mall like this now what's interesting about this movie is it's Zack snyder kind of earlier in his career and we get to see the start of that kind of um action orientated almost graphic novel like portrayal that he brings to the screen uh, this movie revolves around a group of survivors holed up in a mall as they watch the undead collapse society around them. And then we get to watch as they all 
almost deal with each other during this well pandemic like we're all in right now and it's a little uh it's a little dark i'll tell you right now this movie has sarah Polly, uh vig rames uh jake Reb, sorry jake weber wow pronunciations are hard and a whole bunch of other people and what i really love about it is this one focuses kind of on the zombies but it's it's more focused on the characters and how they deal with it that's not to say that this doesn't have some amazing gore effects in it some great looking zombies and some interesting twists and turns in the plot along the way and who's sa- who's to say all these characters survive who knows who's going to make it to the end and who's not this movie has so many scenes that for me i just remember to this day and it's one of those ones where it's just like it is one of the one of my favorite zombie films and one of the better more recent zombie films that i've seen you know the stuff from uh, Romero aside, because uh, that stuff is classic and fantastic, and what Zack Snyder brings to this genre is amazing. Uh, Vig Rames, for example, his performance is just amazing. Uh, he plays Ken- Kenneth, and he becomes the group's kind of leader. He's a man of action and has the clearest head when trouble happening. Anna is the other character, and she's played by uh, Sarah Pauly, and her character is kind of the one that we focus most around. We're introduced to her right at the beginning. She's kind of our our heroine of the film. And what trials and tribulations she has to go through in this film are great. And I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending to this uh, doesn't just happen in the movie. It, part of it takes place during the credits, and I kind of love that. It brings everything kind of to a finale that makes you kind of... Not exactly questioning what happened, but it doesn't leave you with an 100% clear answer and i kind of i kind of love that about this film uh so if you haven't seen it yet i totally recommend it this is one of those ones where i would give it like a 4 out of 5 80% but it for what it is on a technical level but for me it's a 10 out of 10 so i 100% recommend this film and uh yeah and if you want to hear more of my thoughts on films check me out at flix x raid on your uh, favorite podcast catcher good night so thanks to Tony for from Flix X-Raid for giving us that review of Dawn of the Dead, the remake. I have all sorts of things to say about Dawn of the Dead, but I feel like Tony kind of summed it up. He really wrapped that up. The one thing that I will add is you haven't seen this movie, correct? I have not. But I kind of forced you to watch the first 10 minutes of it. Did I? You did. I guess you've forgotten. It was like a month ago. Oh, okay. But I think it has one of the best opening sequences in in film, really. Like oh, the first I remember it now. Yeah. Wasn't it fantastic? It was really interesting because it was so different. Yeah, it's a it's a great movie. Uh, you can say a lot of things about where Zack Snyder has been since, but I love this movie. Okay, well, I'm glad you loved that last one. But our final guests for tonight are. Shar and Kelly from the Drinking and Screaming podcast reviewing Train to Busan. Hello and welcome to a mini takeover of the I Love This and You Should Too podcast because this is Drinking and Screaming. I'm Shar. And I'm Kelly. And we're a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. And we're so glad to be joining this fabulous team to talk about our favorite zombie movie, and for us, well, I I was the one that picked this film, but I imagine Kelly loves it too. It's Train to Busan from 2016. Pew, pew, pew. Wow! 
Um, and on our show, what we do is we make a cocktail that matches the mood and themes of the movie. So if you wanted to make a cocktail that would go along with Train to Busan, I we did it on our show before and I liked what I made, but I didn't. I could perfect it a bit more. And it was a matcha ice cream float. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. <laughs> I didn't care for it. So it was green ice cream. It was matcha green tea ice cream, which was really, really good. I loved that. But it was the I used. I think I want to use cream soda instead of flavored soda water for this. And oh, I yeah. think that would totally change the vibe and just fill it with some white rum to top it off. But what's your what's your favorite thing about Train to Busan, Kelly? Uh, so whenever you watch a zombie movie, I feel like the most important aspect of the zombies is their movement. And whether they're fast zombies or slow zombies or like weird twitchy zombies, uh, I feel like getting that movement down solid is very important for any zombie movie. And I think Train to Busan did a incredible job at that. Uh, just like the first time that you see the movement of the zombies, you immediately get this sense of like dread and horror at the way that this, uh, I'm assuming a dancer was moving. Of course, had to be that they hired <laughs> professional dancers as, for this. Uh, as any good production does that doesn't have <laughs> hordes of zombies. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just like throughout the entire movie, they do so many good jobs of like showing the movement of the zombies. And even in like the hordes, they all have this like, eerie movement to them it's uh yeah. it's very good watching them it's very classic trope of like a pile of zombies especially if the zombies are fast moving to like arrive on a glass pane or something and more of them come and like i thought that when the glass breaks in train to busan when they're on the the platform the train platform it's Unlike anything else that we've seen before, the way that they did it, and it's just so great. Yeah, it's it's top notch. And we wouldn't be having any zombie films if it wasn't for Night of the Living Dead. So, thanks for paving the way for zombie films. <laughs> but mine, and it's funny because my point is going to be about how I love the zombie film genre, and I I love it not because of the zombies, but I do find that like post-apocalyptic horror, it's really cool to dive into the relationships of the humans that are living in these circumstances because the stakes have never been more high that, than a human can come and bite you in the neck or whatever. During an all-out pandemic where everyone can get you <laughs> sick by just getting close to you? So yeah. unrealistic. <laughs> um, but the relationship that happens with this awful father figure businessman and his daughter and how their relationship actually grows over the two hours of this film is amazing and I will never I don't want to spoil Train to Busan because this is not an episode on Train to Busan just a little segment but I'll never get over the song that she th sings and that's all I'm gonna say I mean there were two dads in this movie one, and the other one was awesome. One terrible dad <laughs> and one that wasn't even a dad yet and he was the best <laughs> Uh, so we have another segment on our our normal big podcast called Scaredy Facts. Whoa! Where we uh, talk about the trivia of the movie for very sentimental reasons. Um, and I have three quick facts for you today. The sentimental reasons are because we started our relationship and we would watch horror movies. Because Kelly and I are in love. We're in love. And scary movies uh, perpetuate that love. But when we get too spooked, we have to read IMDb and other movie facts to calm down. <laughs> So give me give me these uh, these trivia facts for Train to Busan. Uh, so the first fact is that this is the sixth 
largest grossing uh, movie in Korea. Nice. In yes. South Korea? Uh, yes. They're, uh, all North Korean movies are glorious <laughs> and make the most money of anything ever. Of course. Of course. As far as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my second one is that the word zombie is only mentioned once in this movie. Once? Once. Oh. Yes. And my final one is on topic of this very episode that you are listening to, uh, which is that there's a reference to Night of the Living Dead at the end. Uh, oh. When two main characters run into some authority figures and are almost shot on sight. Very reminiscent of Night of the Living Dead. Pew, pew. Well, then. Yeah. So that's my that's my three trivia facts for this short segment we just blasted through an entire episode. If you want to find more full-length episodes where we interview the celebrities, the actors that are on the show, we do full trivia segments, uh, scaredy facts, lots of behind-the-scenes stories, and big queer feminist discussions on these films. Uh, you can find us wherever you're listening to this podcast and on social media at drink underscore scream. And remember, always scream responsibly. Thank you to the Drinking and Screaming podcast for their review of Train to Busan. And uh, we had so much fun having all of these special guests on our show this year. So this is another zombie movie that I have not seen. Um, So I'm going to leave it up to Indy to tell us what he thought of that review of this movie. Well, Train to Busan has a very special place in my heart because I lived in Busan for Yay. many years and I've been on that train many times. Oh, the specific train? Yeah. So I, I'm a fan of the movie as well, but they covered everything. One thing that I will add about North Korean films, because they were saying, though, yeah, they don't get the movies we do, but Kim Jong-il was a filmmaker. Not a lot of people know really? that. He went to film school and he made this one movie called Pulgasari. Uh, Pulgasari was a, kind of like a Godzilla type movie, oh. but it's a very communist Godzilla movie. He eats iron and is like the champion of the workers and takes down like the capitalists. It's pretty sweet, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> he also uh, kidnapped filmmakers and made them make stuff for him. But that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, Train to Busan. Check it out. Sounds good. Well, thanks to all of our guests and all of you listening out there for what has turned into our longest podcast ever. Ever. So if you keep listening to us, they are shorter than this. Next week, we'll be doing the other format we do where we'll be picking a couple of things that we're listening to or watching or reading, giving some spoiler-free reviews of that. And then Samantha will introduce what I will have to watch for the next episode. You say have to, like it's a bad thing. It often is. <laughs> <laughs> what I get to watch. Rude. <laughs> but let's wrap up on the classic Night of the Living Dead. Do you have any final thoughts on this movie? I think if you're a fan of zombie movies, then you should absolutely be seeing this one. Um, keep an open mind. Really take in all the details, and uh, you're going to spend a day or two thinking about it after, I think. So everyone should see this. Indy, do you have a final thought? Yes, of course. I love Night of the Living Dead. I think it's important in so many ways. It 
created an entire genre, if not two. It changed how horror movies are made. It changed the scope of American filmmaking, proving that you can be outside of the Hollywood studio system and still find success. It gave hope to so many independent filmmakers, myself included. Like, I don't think I would have made those terrible little shorts that I've made if it wasn't for movies like this proving that, yeah, anyone can make movies. And it's more true now than ever. And if you only remember this movie for the lumbering zombie that was introduced, for the idea of the dead coming alive and eating flesh, that's enough. Mm-hmm. This movie has done so much. But I think the true power of Romero's vision and what zombie movies often are and should be when they're at their best is the mirror that it turns on to the society that created it. Mm-hmm. Zombie movies are especially unique. I think this is true of most horror movies, most good horror movies, but especially of zombie movies, that they are allowed to take on the problems of society wherever it's being made. And all of that is very clear in Night of the Living Dead, and that's why I think it's an amazing film, an amazing work of art, and an amazing commentary on the United States in the late 60s. And I think all of it is still very relevant today. I agree. You agree that it's amazing and you love it. There we go. I've convinced (laughs) her, everyone. Uh, It's fine. It's important, (laughs) but it's fine. Well, this is our last Spooktober episode, so we're going to be laying off the horror for a little bit, but there may always be some more. And next it's Christmas. Oh, yeah. It's almost Christmas time. So in December, we'll be doing all Christmas movies. And if you like our horror stuff, you can go back, listen to all of our things from last October, where we talked about Gerald's Game, The Shining. We just did an episode on The Exorcist. So go give it all a listen. You have a lot of horror to listen to still. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us or any of our special guests, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at I-L-T-Y-S and the number two. You can find us on Facebook at I Love This You Should 2-podcast, or you can email us at I Love This You Should and the number two at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Have a spooky week. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. It's like a like a TV dinner, but they're not frozen. So it's like a dried potato. No, they're like fully microwaved. No, they're fully cooked, and then they just seal them. They're like limited shelf life. They come in refrigerated. I've never purchased any sort of instant potato. I feel like a potato is the easiest thing. I didn't. Oh, it's not but... like an instant potato. Like it, it is potatoes. Like it, they've made scalloped potatoes. In Do you this make dish. it like pretty instantly? <laughs> yes. It kind of sounds like an instant potato. No, because an instant potato to me is like flakes. But this is an instant scalloped potato. Yeah, but it's not like a flaked potato. It's like actual pieces of potato. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's instant. It takes five minutes. It's pretty instant. <laughs> Welcome back to Potato Corner. <laughs>